0: Hi, I'm Connie Loises.
1: And this is Alex Gove.
0: And this is Strictly VC Download. Happy Friday. We are checking in here from sunny but slightly smoky Marin County, where it is suddenly insanely hot and the air seems poised to take a turn for the worst. Though that didn't stop this kid from sneaking out to tennis a little earlier today. I will probably lose a year on the back end because of it, but I'll worry about that later. Coming up, Alex and I talked with someone who is a little afield from the investors and founders who we typically interview for the podcast, but who spends some of his time researching their political attitudes, and that's political economist Neil Malhotra of Stanford University. Given that there is a recall election coming up fast out here, one that could determine not only who's running the state, but also perhaps the political balance of the Senate, it's very much top of mind for a lot of Californians, and we wanted to better understand why he thinks some members of the quote unquote tech elite are trying to drive current Governor Gavin Newsom out of the gubernatorial mansion. But first, the news. <laughs> One of the big stories this week centered on Manish Lakwani, co-founder and former CEO of a startup called Headspin. The company was, for several years, on a trajectory that we've grown accustomed to seeing in recent years. Its software, which works in the background of apps and devices to ensure they don't freeze or lag, attracted $60 million in Series seed funding early last year, led by some big names, and at a valuation that doubled its previous valuation. Now, none of this would be so notable, except that behind the scenes, trouble was brewing. Lakwani was allegedly so focused on securing a lofty valuation for Headspin that according to new complaints from both the DOJ and the SEC, he pushed employees to lie to investors about the company's traction, including, and I'm quoting the DOJ here, instructing employees to include revenue from potential customers that inquired but that did not engage Headspin, from past customers who no longer did business with Headspin, and from existing customers whose business was far less than the reported revenue. That's not good. And Lakwani lost his job a year ago following an internal investigation. But now he's facing even more dire consequences, from being barred as an executive and corporate board member to spending up to decades in jail and facing a fine of up to $5 million. There was a lot of follow-up in the media about lessons to be learned from the case this week, including that founders should know that even in a feverish market like this one where things are moving fast, lying about your numbers can most assuredly catch up to you. Of course, there is a lesson on the investor side too, which is that you can't skip out on due diligence. Investors here probably trusted that Lakwani was the real deal because of his background, including previously selling a mobile cloud business to Google. But while they trusted, they did not verify. And as investor Bill Gurley tweeted earlier this week, that's not so uncommon right now. He said that waiving audit requirements is on the rise. Hopefully this story will cause investors to pay more attention to their company's numbers.
1: Investing in China just got a whole lot tougher. The Wall Street Journal reported today that Chinese companies that hold, quote, large amounts of consumer data will no longer be able to go public in the U.S., In addition, Chinese authorities intend to significantly tighten restrictions on companies that are allowed to go IPO. Previously, Alibaba, Didi Global, and Tencent used a corporate mechanism known as a variable interest entity to attract foreign capital and list offshore. They didn't have to obtain the explicit permission of the Chinese government to list on U.S. exchanges. Now the Chinese will require companies to obtain approval to go public from a new bureaucracy that is being created. As if all of this weren't enough, the Chinese government also proposed today regulations that forbid companies from using algorithms that, quote, encourage addiction or high consumption and endanger national security or disrupt public order. Coupled with a recent data security crackdown and tightening regulations around online education services, the news is not good for VC investors, such as Sequoia Capital and its Chinese affiliate Sequoia China, which have invested over $10 billion in Chinese startups over the last decade. While one-third of Sequoia's portfolio and half of its initial public offerings for the first six months of this year were focused on healthcare investments, which so far have been spared regulators' scrutiny, the firm has many Chinese portfolio companies, potentially hundreds of companies, that could be impacted by these changes. As one investor in several affected funds told Bloomberg's Sarah McBride, Those who know aren't talking, and those who are talking have no clue.
0: Last but not least, Andreessen Horowitz took the wraps off yet another fund today. This time, the firm, which is now managing many billions of dollars in assets, rolled out a $400 million seed fund. To us, this was interesting for a number of reasons. First, we'd visited with firm co-founder Mark Andreessen soon after founding Strictly VC, and back then... In late 2013, the firm was backing out of seed stage investing because, in short, it sometimes created bad feelings with founders when the mission of their companies began to overlap, which can happen with very nascent startups. It's the same reason that a lot of firms have gravitated toward, then backed away from seed investing over time. Yet most, like Andreessen Horowitz, have concluded they can't afford not to invest in very new startups, and so they do. I think most founders have also come to appreciate that conflicts can sometimes arise at the seed stage, and they can live with this. Even if a prestigious firm like Andreessen Horowitz decides to double down on a rival company, that early association often sets up teams to successfully raise follow-on funding anyway. There's that early brand association, of course, but other investors might also reason that the startup learned a thing or two about company building from that previous firm. In the meantime, it's worth noting that while $400 million is not a lot of money for Andreessen Horowitz circa 2021, it's a lot of money. It's more than what Andreessen Horowitz raised for its first flagship fund back in 2009, and it's just a huge amount of capital when talking about pretty amorphous startups. I guess the market can keep absorbing all this capital from this firm and so many other outfits that are now writing seed stage checks, but then again, can it? Are there enough startups to warrant all this investment? Stay tuned?
1: up next our interview with neil malhotra but first a word from our sponsor
0: This episode of Strictly VC Download is brought to you by Tegas. In today's fast-paced market, VCs are looking for ways to build conviction quickly and shorten their time to term sheet. Tegas can help. VCs like Spark Capital, Thrive Capital, and Redpoint use the Tegas platform to get up to speed on new companies or markets in hours instead of days. Just log in for access to more than 20,000 investor-led expert calls covering companies from seed stage to IPO curious about Tegas? Request your free trial at www.tegas.co backslash today. That's www.tegas.co backslash strictlyvc.
1: Neil Malhotra, who is a professor of political economy at Stanford Business School, first came to our attention in an excellent Wired article by Ariel Pardes entitled, Gavin Newsom's Recall Election Divides Silicon Valley's Elite. In the article, Malhotra discusses research he conducted in 2017 on the political attitudes of the tech elite. He and his team of researchers discovered that while these technology wunderkind were very liberal on social issues, they displayed a strong distaste for government regulation, particularly regarding labor matters. In Malhotra's view, Newsom's decision to roll out copious COVID regulations governing how businesses could operate during a pandemic may have triggered tech titans such as Chamath Palhabitia and David Sachs into supporting Newsom's recall. Whatever the case, polls now suggest that Newsom is in a tight contest. If he does not secure 50% of the vote, he will be thrown out of office. And a challenger with only a small portion of the overall vote, perhaps as little as 20%, will succeed him. Given a Newsom loss could have a significant impact on the world's most robust technology economy, we thought it only prudent to talk to Malhotra and learn more about how we ended up here and what he thinks the recall process could mean for the state. Here's our interview.
0: Neil, thank you so much for joining us. You are a political economist who I know has been affiliated with Stanford and teaching there since 2008. Tell us a little bit about how you got into this line of work.
2: I think it was motivated from a historical perspective. When you look at a lot of major changes in American politics and parties, a lot of them have been driven by major business interests and sources of wealth. A good example is the Robert barons, including Leland Stanford at the turn of the century, And it looks like we're going through a similar period right now. At the time the study was done, I believe all of the five most valued companies in the United States were technology companies. Whereas even if you looked 10, 15 years ago, it was dominated by oil and gas and financial services. So I thought an interesting question would be to examine the political views of technology elites, and hopefully that would be a good source of data for historians Hundred years in the future, we would have loved to have surveys of Leland Stanford, Cornelius Vanderbilt, John Rockefeller, those kind of people many years ago.
0: So Neil, explain to me a little bit how you studied these political attitudes. Are you interviewing anyone? Are you following people on social media, tracking their political donations?
2: So people have done all of that. So we were doing direct survey measures. As our sampling frame, we used the Crunchbase database of people who had received Series A funding, who had founded their companies. And we coordinated actually with a TechCrunch journalist who used his Rolodex essentially to send out the survey invitations to these people. And then they responded to the survey. And we paired it also with surveys of other elites, including major donors of both parties.
1: Can you explain how the Silicon Valley folks that you polled differ from the California population as well as the national population in general?
2: Sure. So just to be clear, I'm using Silicon Valley as a metaphor. A lot of these people are located in other areas of the country as well, like Boston, Austin, Research Triangle, Los Angeles, etc. But just generally, I think the attitudes of this group of technology elites is unique and something you don't see in any other part of the population. And I've called them liberal to distinguish them from libertarians. They tend to be very liberal on social issues issues related to globalization, like immigration and free trade, and they support redistribution. So they have surprisingly very high support for universal healthcare, but they're very against government regulation. So this distinguishing between redistribution and regulation is what makes this population very unique, even among very rich people in the United States.
0: It's so interesting. And I wonder how you think... It evolved in that way. When you talk about labor specifically, which I think you've done in the past, I was wondering if you meant regulation around limiting the number of skilled, educated immigrants that can come to the U.S. and help founders and investors, or you're talking about gig workers. Just wondering if you can drill into that.
2: Well, I think it's both. The survey asked about both of those kind of questions, and they are very, very supportive of immigration and also very, very supportive of gig workers and against abilities to restrict the labor market in any way. They're very, very anti-union, which also distinguishes them from other people within the Democratic Party. And so I think the general belief system they have is to let the market operate and then afterwards redistribute money through taxes and social programs, because they feel that this is what will grow the pie the biggest and still then allow for equality rather than putting a lot of restrictions in place a priori, which will shrink innovation, shrink the pie.
0: I do wonder what you think about the tax side of things. We've talked in the past with Anand Girardaris, who's a former New York Times reporter, book author, who is very down on the tech elites who talk about redistribution of wealth, but in practice often are shielding their assets or their company's assets. I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about how sincere that is when they say that in a survey answer
2: we had very limited space on the survey. So one thing I regret is not asking more about capital gains taxes versus income taxes. They are very supportive of high income taxes. But maybe that's self-serving given that a lot of their wealth comes from capital gains. And it's very possible they would be less supportive of capital gains taxes, not because it takes away their wealth, but because they would feel that it stifles innovation.
1: One of the leading tech figures in Silicon Valley, Chamath Palahapatia, said that California's high taxes was one of the reasons why he was supporting the recall. Do you find that in general, the supporters of the recall are also citing taxation as an issue or are there other issues that are more front of mind for the supporters of the recall?
2: Yes. I mean, we haven't collected data since our study in 2017, so I think all the inferences can be conjectured. I mean, Chamath also supported Elizabeth Warren and gave money to her, and she's very supportive of high taxation. So maybe it's more of a thing where he doesn't want California to be uncompetitive compared to Texas and would rather the national government set the tax policy. But I I think some of the issues are not just taxation. Like with the COVID restriction, I think that there's a sense that these tech entrepreneurs really identify with entrepreneurs even if they're not elite entrepreneurs. That includes small business owners, restaurant owners, gym owners, small landlords. They just feel like the government has been punishing these people over the course of the pandemic. And additionally, I think, in addition to being against unions generally, they're against public sector unions like teachers' unions. And so I think the restrictions on school openings... Also struck a chord with this population.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I know, uh, you know, David Sachs, for example, who's one of the other high profile tech investors and entrepreneurs who is part of this recall campaign, or at least has donated to it, has said expressly that that's been one of his concerns. Neil, I'm also wondering if you don't mind my asking you to look into your crystal ball, which you don't have. Um, how bad is it for Newsom, what's happening in? Afghanistan right now. I saw that Kamala Harris couldn't join him today at a rally, understandably, given the attack at the airport in Kabul yesterday. But of course, there's a lot of bipartisan frustration with Biden over the U.S.'s withdrawal in Afghanistan. Do you see a connection there?
2: If you look at most of the polling data, even though this seems to be a big elite level concern, most people want to be out of Afghanistan. And generally, people don't follow foreign policy issues that much. I think what's actually potentially gonna hurt Newsom more is that the Delta variant is gonna get worse. And as I said a a month ago when people asking, oh, is California gonna put more restrictions on? And I said, on September 15th, there'll be more restrictions. He is waiting until this election is over to impose them. They wanna just get this recall done. And the timing I think has not worked out well for them, but they are lucky that California, because the vax rate is so high, and people are pretty good about some restrictions. That's not like a Texas, Florida situation where the cases are out of control.
1: Newsom's camp has raised quite a bit of money. I believe it's in the neighborhood of $70 million versus the recall proponents, which have raised sub $10 million. Do you think that the money raised in this recall effort is going to substantially impact turnout?
2: I think everything makes a difference on the margin. All that money does go to advertising, get out the vote efforts. But at the end of the day, if there's a real movement, it can't really overcome it. Hillary Clinton outraised Trump tremendously. And I'm sure all that money did help. But I think the big question is going to be who's excited to turn out, who's going to motivate and they may need that $70 million to convince people who are not that excited about voting in this election to vote in it to save him.
0: You might have seen a story in The Atlantic today, somebody interviewing Newsom, and the reporter notes that another potential ripple that I don't think people are thinking about is that if Dianne Feinstein, the state's aging senior senator, is unable to finish her term, whoever wins this recall, and if it's a Republican... We'll be able to appoint her replacement, which changes everything at the national level.
2: Yeah, uh, that's somewhat of a risk. I would say that's also a risk of many elderly senators who are in states with Republican governors and where the state laws allow the governor to do that. So that is a scenario. I think it's something that people should be concerned about if you're a Democrat. But at the same time, I think the probability is likely that Dianne Feinstein will serve out her term.
0: Neil, what do you think a recall could mean to tech? As you said, tech is basically everything now. It's taken over the world. But are there ripple effects for investors, startups, if there's a change in administration here?
2: I think the Democrats would be pretty favored to recapture the governorship in 2022. But I think it could just send a shake up to the Democratic elites in California, that maybe they need to moderate their positions a bit, potentially. I think they have such power in the state, they have super majorities in the legislature, they may say, okay, we don't have to worry about this. But if this shows that there's a schism within the Democratic Party, then they might have to adjust their policies they've had traditionally, which a lot of people say have been unsuccessful on things like housing, homelessness, regulation, etc., So I think that's always a possibility. I think the other interesting thing to look out for is if Gavin Newsom loses, it very well could be that Latino and Asian voters were the ones that were the ones that put the nail in the coffin.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Can you elaborate on that?
2: So, I mean, if you look at the 2020 election, there is a lot of Latino and Asian areas that move towards the Republican Party. And that was kind of a shock. Moreover, If you look at some of the polling data, the the wing of the Democratic Party that seems to be supporting this recall seems to be Latino and Asian voters.
0: Yes, I was shocked by that movement toward the Republican Party, especially in Florida, but I'm still a little bit confused what's driving it. And I'm especially surprised to hear about American Asian populations moving in this direction, given what we've seen in the headlines all year, uh, owing to rhetoric from the Republican Party about this being a China virus, et cetera.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that is very interesting. I mean, uh, some of those congressional districts they won were heavily Vietnamese. So this idea of this pan Asian ethnicity, I think it's overblown. I think many Asian people don't view themselves as Asian, even though elites might view them that way they view it as their nationality. I think there's a lot of questions on why this is the case. Uh, a lot of hypotheses out there. And I don't know if there's good evidence on any specific argument. But I think if this recall does go through, it will be eye-opening and it might mean that the Democrats have to solidify their coalition more going forward. And that, for example, could be, how are we going to look out for entrepreneurs and small business owners? If you look at, for example, these COVID restrictions, they definitely hurt a group of people, the working class or entrepreneurial class, more than, let's say, people zooming into their offices. Sure. Right? And the Democratic... Party, the people that have more power in it are the people in that work from home laptop class. And so it's possible that if there's a shakeup, it could shake and make a postmortem to the Democratic Party. How can we be more inclusive of people who are not part of the, let's say, extremely high educated elite that is the base of our party? And
0: then, Neil, I don't know if you are following this, but I'm just wondering if you think that we'll be seeing something similar happening to governors around the country if this recall election is successful.
2: It's possible. I think a lot of states don't have recall provisions. The recall provisions could be more difficult. I'm not an expert on all the different recall laws, but I think one thing that's also unique is that they have this recall proposition where they have this second election going on to replace. So it's not like the lieutenant governor gets to replace it. So I think there's a lot of nuances that make California especially weird in the recall system. But I think it would be a wake up to the Democratic Party, similar to if you remember in 2009. When Ted Kennedy died, Scott Brown won a Senate seat. And this was, I think, a harbinger, which is, oh, what, this is trouble. That if this can happen in Massachusetts, it can happen anywhere. I'm not saying it's causally tied or anything, but I think it was a nice precursor to the 2010 midterm elections. And I think you could say something similar here, which is, wow, if a liberal electorate like California gets rid of their governor, What does that mean for 2022? And I think that would definitely be on the National Democratic Party's mind, even if there's not a whole bunch of other recall efforts.
1: What do you think of the strategy of the Democratic Party not to recommend an alternative candidate in the event that Newsom loses? I've read that the reason that they are taking this position is because they don't want to confuse voters and they want voters to focus on keeping Newsom in office. But it does seem to be somewhat of a risky strategy since the other 46 candidates are kind of a dog's breakfast of political candidates.
2: I think it's a really interesting strategy. I don't know if it's correct or not. It logically makes sense. On the other hand, these are the same advisors who misfiled his paperwork so that he is not listed as a Democrat on the ballot. So I take their expertise with a grain of salt. But generally, It's very self-serving for the party and maybe not that good for the state. In my view, if you're a Democrat in California, you should be voting no fault. And the reason is, if you don't actually take a position on the second part of the ballot, you could have someone like Larry Elder, who's very, very against your positions, winning. And as a hedging of your bet, you should just hope that Kevin Faulkner is the governor.
1: Even though Faulkner is a Republican, isn't that correct?
2: Faulkner was a very moderate technocratic mayor of San Diego. I lived in San Diego when he was mayor, and most people had no clue he was a Republican. He was pro-choice, pro-environment, etc. He's probably made his positions more conservative to attract the Trump supporters because it's going to be hard to win otherwise. But I think if you're a Democrat, your your second best choice besides Newsom in this election is Kevin Faulkner.
0: He's done a lot to tackle homelessness in San Diego, too, from what I understand.
2: Yes. And I mean, in a generally very humane way, etc. He's very moderate mayor, as you would expect, trying, getting elected twice in a very liberal city. What the Democrats are worried about is I think there's a the confusion argument. I think there's also the argument which is it's going to be way easier to beat Larry Elder in 2022 than it is Kevin Faulkner.
1: So there have been a number of tech luminaries, of course, who have supported this recall But under what scenario would they gain more influence if Newsom loses? It seems like they're betting on chaos in a way.
2: If you look at the state assembly, they've just voted against them many times, despite the fact that they traditionally have supported Democrats. So if you look at, for example, the, the gig worker law that just got reinstated by a court Maybe if the Democrats say, okay, well, this is a constituency that we have to worry about and we have to have more power, it it could make a difference. So I think a good test case of this is Ro Khanna. So if you remember Ro Khanna in his first campaign against Mike Honda, he ran as like the Silicon Valley technocrat and was supported by Sandberg and all of these tech luminaries. And he lost that election. And then he shifted and became the Bernie Sanders guy and was, I think, the national chair of Bernie Sanders campaign. And now is this quasi-squad member that's on the far left. I just think that's really interesting. It's almost like a microcosm of the Democratic Party first embracing the tech community and then now being very against it. This recall could reshape those alliances again, potentially.
0: Neil, I'm going to have a chance to talk to Chamath next month for a TechCrunch event. I'm wondering, do you have anything you would like me to ask him?
2: Well, I I think an interesting question I have for not just Chamath, but everybody is, what home do you see your party in? Because it seems like both parties are not reflecting the values of the tech community and what their belief systems are. And traditionally, I think because they had these positions on globalization, social issues, they just could not see themselves aligning with the Republican Party. But has that changed in any way? Or do they think that there's a way to boost a third party? So I'd be interested to see whether they still feel accepted in the Democratic coalition.
0: Neil, thank you so much. It's really a treat to talk to you. Maybe we'll talk again in September if you can make time for us. We'll be interested to see, obviously, what happens in the next few weeks.
2: Sure. Thanks for having me, and thanks for your great questions. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Strictly VC Download. Don't forget to look for Strictly VC in your inbox, and we'll be back on Monday. Goodbye, folks!